This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat. If this is your first time with, on a Bright Focus Chat, I want to tell you a little bit about us and, and what we do, what we'll do today. Bright Focus Foundation is a nonprofit. We fund some of the top researchers in the world. We support scientists who are trying to find cures and new treatments for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. And we make sure that we're sharing the latest research and, and latest news from, from scientists with families that are impacted by these diseases. We do that through our website, brightfocus.org. We do it through a number of free uh, print publications for families. And we also do it through uh, what we're doing today, a Bright Focus chat, which is an opportunity to have uh, uh, spend some time with an expert in the field of macular degeneration and, um, and learn what's new. I'd like to tell you about today's guest, it's Dr. Alan Taylor from Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Taylor directs a lab on nutrition and vision research, and he's a professor, professor of nutrition, development, molecular and chemical biology, and ophthalmology at the Tufts University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Taylor, I want to thank you for, for joining us today. My pleasure. Great. I know that um, today we'll be discussing uh, some of your research onto the dietary uh, factors that, that may affect uh, macular degeneration, but I just want to start just a very basic question. How did you, uh, how did you get into this line of work? What, what, was, your, what was your motivation to, uh, to become a, a, re- a scientist? Well, my motivation to become a scientist is I guess I was a Sputnik baby, and uh, science was the thing to do for young boys. And I've always been intrigued by the basic principles of science and loved doing science at home, and my parents always encouraged me to do that, even though they themselves were never educated, so maybe they saw me as a way to fulfill some of their dreams. Uh, And then, to make a long story short, after I was in college and graduate school, where I did my degree in basic uh, chemistry, I went to Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, where I was isolating an enzyme, and at that time, isolating and characterizing enzymes was quite exciting. And in order for me to isolate the enzyme I was interested in, I literally had to cut 20,000 cow eyes apart to get the enzyme. And the tissue I was after was the lens. So I got deep into the eye, and I became curious as to why and how does nature make this beautiful tissue that, that becomes clear and stays clear for virtually all the life of the animal. So that began many years of experimentation and inquiry into trying to understand why lenses remain clear and then why the retina, which is the tissue right next to it, functions as a much more complicated organ, but how the two tissues work together to create vision. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it is amazing. Um, now, I know you, you're, you're leading some studies that look at, at um, how individual foods and dietary patterns that you know vary uh, uh, around the world, how, um, how, how those affect macular degeneration. I was wondering if you could kind of characterize some of your, uh, some of your research and what you found in, in that area. Sure. Well, first of all, it's important to appreciate that we asked the question about macular degeneration in a few ways. That is, do you get it or don't you get it? Do you have it, don't you have it? Or if you have it, how advanced is it? Now, the reason we ask the question about how advanced it is is because if we can delay the progress of macular degeneration from very early stages, say to middle or late stages where it compromises vision, 
we virtually have developed a cure without any drugs. So now to backtrack about the nutritional information we ask, we ask about whether people who <clears throat> who eat diets that are what we call a prudent diet, that's rich in fruits and vegetables and fish, say as compared to people who eat a diet that's very heavily laden with oils and fats and um, and sugars, how does, how does their risk for macular degeneration compare? And we found that people who consume very what we call the typical American diet, which is high fat, high sugar, um, have much greater risk for macular degeneration than people who consume what we call the prudent diet, that is the one that's more rich in fruits and vegetables and fish. And more importantly, or equally importantly, is the more you subscribe to one of those diets, the greater the correlation with risk for macular degeneration. So in other words, the more careful you are with your diet, the less chance you have of getting macular degeneration, both the advanced form and the early form. And the more you consume diets which are rich in refined sugars and fats, the more chances you are you have of developing advanced macular degeneration. So we were very excited to find that these relationships also hold for early macular degeneration because, as I said, to the extent to which you can arrest or delay the progress of early disease, you preserve vision for that many more years. Wow, that that's no, that is that is amazingly powerful um, uh, correlation there. So, so when you look around the world, does does the uh, rates of of macular degeneration connect with with um with those type with diets that are more uh, prevalent in in different 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 regions of the globe? That's a very important question. At the moment, we've used diets uh, or cohorts in the United States and in Australia, so. I think those diets are somewhat comparable. So I would say that we really don't have as much data as we'd like to have, say, from countries where people consume a much more vegetable-rich diet or vegetable and fish-rich diet, like some places like Israel where people consume a lot of vegetables, or what you used to call the Mediterranean diet. I think in some of the Mediterranean countries where people consume high fruit vegetables and more fish and less beef and less sweets, uh, we would anticipate that they'd be better protected. But we don't have a lot of data, but the data that exists around does support the idea that consuming diets rich in, rich in fruits and vegetables and fish and less rich in sweets uh, and high fats is, is better for your eyes. Well, that's, that's interesting. Now, I've heard a lot of um, people in the, in the science and, and, and medical world talk about a glycemic index. Is that right. is that uh, another way of... of, of uh, talking about your the, the points the points you've made, so that allows when you talk about the glycemic index, you're really zeroing in on a specific aspect of the diet, and what I mean by that is specifically the dietary glycemia. Glycemia refers to the amount of sugar that your blood sees when you consume a, a food item that contains carbohydrate. Carbohydrate being the same thing as sugar, but what we found is that people who consume diets that are that deliver sugar rapidly to the bloodstream, what we call high glycemic index diets, um, those diets are clearly associated with greater risk for macular degeneration of all stages, be it advanced or early macular degeneration, compared to people who consume lower glycemic index diets. And you might sort of generalize that to say glycemia, that is diets that deliver 
sugar fast versus diets that deliver sugar slowly, high glycemia versus high low glycemia diets. And the reason I make that distinction is because some people argue about whether the glycemic index per se is a very precise measure, which it is not. But on the other hand, accounting for the glycemia, however it comes to the blood, is a pretty is a better physiological measure. I hope I'm not confusing you. No, no, no. Um, but just to double check, so are foods that are high glycemic uh, are those the ones you mentioned that are um, such such as they have a lot of fats and, and oils? Is that so? So with the high glycemic are those the ones that would raise your risk? So I, I want to make I, I need to make a correction. High okay. glycemic refers to diets that liberate a lot of glucose, a lot of sugar in your blood. Now, I'm specifically making a distinction between that and fat. Fat actually has zero glycemic index. It's not good for you, but it has zero glycemic index. And that's a way that food manufacturers sometimes alter foods to make them low glycemic index, but they could put fat in there. So we don't want to talk about fat when we're speaking about glycemic index. Glycemic index specifically measures carbohydrate and sugar. Yeah, no, that's no. I appreciate the distinction. So, why do you think, um, am I hearing correctly, sugar is can be bad for the eyes? Is that is correct? High um, levels yeah. of simple sugar, as a for instance, as one is one finds if you drink a lot of soda, that is considerably damaging to the eyes. And I was shocked to find out that not too long ago they estimated that the average American could drink 50 gallons of soda a year, which to my mind is absolutely mind-boggling. Doesn't sound doesn't sound good when you phrase it that way. Yeah, wow. Um, now, in, in terms of changes people could make, I mean, to, are, would a relatively modest change like switching from you know white bread to whole grain, or you know, are there sort of more nuanced changes? Do those do those um, bring about um, significant benefits, or you know, or is it or is it more of a, a wider change in diet that would that would make a difference? Well, we calculated that if you consider all of your carbohydrate in your diet to be to come from bread, which it doesn't, but we just guess that all or make a, a guesstimate or an estimate that all your carbohydrate came from bread, if you converted just five or six slices of white bread to five or six slices of whole grain bread per day, you could go from high glycemic index to low glycemic index diet and capture and enjoy or exploit the benefits of that low glycemic index diet with regard to age-related macular degeneration. So this is a change that's very easily done. This is not like stopping smoking or changing your diet in a drastic way. We're not asking people to not eat bread or not eat pasta or not eat potatoes or corn, but just rather to replace a little bit of that with something that's more whole grain or something that liberates the sugar more slowly. And we we did a calculation and said that ju- if people just change their diet with these five slices of from five slices of white bread to whole grain bread, um, you could save a hundred thousand people from macular degeneration in just several years. So the ch- just is profound. Three lunches. Yeah, yeah. It's like two, wow. That is no. That's really impressive. Um, now, does it make a difference if um, uh, foods are are cooked or versus raw, um, yeah, particularly the, the, the ideal foods you're, you're mentioning, um, uh, does, does that have a, an impact? Like I, carrots, like cooked carrots versus raw carrots or any type of... I, I, I think it does. I, to the extent to which the particle size of food changes, 
that will also change the rate at which, say, the carbohydrate in that food is liberated. So if you make the smaller and smaller you make the particle size, I think the more and more, the greater chance of the sugar being liberated quickly. Mm-hmm. So in other words, steel cut, steel cut oats, which are relatively large particle size, probably liberate sugar less rapidly than a more refined oat product, for instance. Well, that's good to know. And I guess kind of one more question along those lines. Do these um, diet uh, changes, or do these help keep, are these preventative from somebody getting AMD, or is it more reducing their AMD from getting worse, or is that, or am I conflating those two? Like, where the nutritional you're asking, you're asking you're asking a very important question, and the answer is we don't exactly know. We our data suggests that people who consume the low glycemic index diets will get or have the onset of macular degeneration later. But I can tell you that we modeled this whole situation in mice, and in mice I can speak much more definitively because it's very clear that the mice to which we feed a low glycemic index diet, comparable to the diets we use in people, that uh, people consume, um, actually do have delayed onset of any so any damage of their retina. Mice don't have a macula, so we have to talk about their retina. So those animals don't get damage to the retina. And not only that, but if we switch them from a high glycemic index diet to a low glycemic index diet, we seem to arrest the damage at very early stages. So if that same information plays out in humans, then I think the answer to your question would be yes, we can delay the onset of wow. age-related macular degeneration. Well, that, that would change quality of life for uh, for millions of people. Um, oh, yeah. We have a number of callers that have that have actually have a very similar question, and it's about uh, AREDS, A-R-E-D-S. Um, uh, I was wondering if you, uh, in terms of um, uh, supplement, uh, the diet. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about uh, AREDS and how it's relevant here. Well, so maybe about 20 or 30 years ago, people were concerned with this phenomenon called oxidative stress, right? Oxidative stress results in damage to a lot of the molecules in various tissues of your body. And what AREDS came up with was a formulation of nutrients, which they thought were antioxidants, that's vitamin C, vitamin E, carotene, beta-carotene, or now they replaced that with lutein and zinc. And they found over several studies that people who use these supplements have delayed progress of macular degeneration going from, say, medium-stage macular degeneration to more advanced stages of macular degeneration. There is some delay for the people who use that kind of a supplement. By the way, I'd like to back up one minute in terms of the glycemic index work we did or the glycemia work we did, and that has been already been demonstrated that people who consume lower glycemia diets are protected, protected against cardiovascular disease and getting type 2 diabetes. So it's not just protecting your eye. You're really protecting your whole body. Yeah, well, that's great. We have a um, question from a caller. Let's just get back to the... Um the whole grain bread and the examples we talked about in a minute, are there other ways besides the, the bread we mentioned to change from a high glycemic diet to a low glycemic diet? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in fact, I just used the bread as an example, um, but I think diminishing or eliminating very sweet drinks is one way to do it. 
or many foods that you find on your food shelves in the supermarket. In fact, I was told that something well above 50% of foods are sweetened, so it probably is well to eliminate some of those. And I'm not suggesting any extreme diets. I just think diminishing, if your diet is carbohydrate-heavy, to diminish that level of carbohydrate somewhat such that it's a little bit less heavy without starting to increase the fat intake. Yeah. No, that's great. And um, I know you, you, you talked about some of the studies that you've done um, in mice. I was wondering, um, when you when you study, when one when scientists study nutrition in humans, um, what are some of the the, the challenges, um, kind of the, the hurdles that that uh, that happen in studying nutrition in humans? Well, in terms of studying the eye specifically, yeah. there are a lot of hurdles. First of all, change happens slowly, and it's very difficult to measure. Even measuring uh, the change in a retina is not is not easily done. It requires a lot of technology. It's hard for people to come into the office, especially people who may have some retina problems. So getting people into studies um, and actually doing the real measurements requires a lot of training. The technology to do the measurements requires specific technology. It's not there's not a lot of non-invasive machinery that's that can evaluate the retina so easily. We certainly could use better tools for that. Um, if you talk about cataracts, for instance, and remembering that cataract is still blinding, the, the major one of the major blinding diseases, even measuring something as simple as the density of the lens is not all that easily done, and it takes a lot of labor to interpret the images that you get from retinas or lenses. So each step of these kind of investigations is very time-consuming, and also because the change is is gradual, these studies can go on for a prolonged period of time, and they require a large investment. But if you think about the quantity of money invested, albeit large, is trivial compared to many of the other things we spend money on, and the return on that investment is enormous because... Uh, remediating or taking care of the medical problems associated with with, with with compromised vision is a very large proportion of the Medicaid budget at this time. Yeah. So these these investments are very worthwhile, but at the moment when you invest in them, they seem to be a high cost item. Yeah, no, that's no, it's interesting because um, uh, you're right. Certainly, the long term costs to families and society are, are from vision loss is, is just. Staggering. We have a question from uh, Janice from California, wondering: um, Is there any benefit to going to a vegan or a vegetarian diet? I have not heard that vegetarians are better protected in terms of their eyesight, as compared with people who consume, say, the t- what we call a prudent diet—that is, uh, high fruits and vegetables, fish, and things like that. Yeah. No, that's great. And. Um, we have a question from Seattle. Uh, a caller um, wants to know about Stargardt's um, and if your some of your findings are the same. And I guess as part of that, if you could just briefly explain to our audience what Stargardt's is and if is are there similarities or not in in your research between macular and Stargardt's. You know, I I I better not answer that question because okay. I don't know enough about Stargardt's disease. Um, sure. Also has to do with you know comparable some of the similar compromises of the retina but I don't think as far as I know there hasn't been a nutritional study done that has addressed Stargardt specifically okay. yeah. no, as far I as I know, just isn't information yeah. about Stargardt sure 
Um, one thing, you know, uh, folks that, that follow health and science news in the, the newspaper or other sources, been hearing a lot about lately uh, gut bacteria or the microbiome. I was wondering, would you mind explaining a little bit about that? And is there a connection uh, between microbiome, the gut bacteria, and, and vision health? Yeah, so what we, we found recently in our mouse studies, um, and this is supported by two very preliminary human studies, um, very preliminary in terms of the human studies, but we did a lot of work in mice, and we found that the diet affects the microbiota, that is the bacteria in your gut. And you might think that there's no connection between your gut and the eye because, after all, in physical distance, you couldn't get longer distance in your body, and even biologically, they would seem to be un unrelated. But it turns out that the gut does make some compounds that are absorbed into your bloodstream, and those compounds may affect the vitality and the function of your eyes. So it turns out that there really is some kind of a relationship Maybe, I don't know how intimate to describe it at this point, but there's certainly a functional relationship between the diet, the microbiome, that is the gut bacteria, and your eyes. And we found, in fact, that when we put mice on low glycemic index diet, they had a different microbiome, a different gut bacteria from the mice on high glycemic index diet. And certain products of that microbiome were related to retinal health. Now, the important thing about our work was that when we took animals that were on the high glycemic index diet and switched them off back to the low glycemic index diet, their microbiome switched back to the or switched to a microbiome that re resembles the low glycemic index diet group, and as I mentioned before, their retina disease was arrested. So we think that this forms like an ecology in which you have diet you have microbiome, you have the body, and all these are working together to affect your vision. I hope I'm being that is, clear. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fascinating because I, I think you're right. I think the most people wouldn't think there was a connection between their, um, you know, their gastro, their GI uh, region of a body and, and vision. That's um, uh, in terms of keeping your gut bacteria happy and healthy. Is it is it is that the the same thing as the uh, the prudent diet? Well, the prudent diet is associated with what we consider a healthier gut microbiome. We're actually, you know, in order to do the proper experiments to answer questions definitively, what one should do is change the microbiome and see if it affects your eyes, right? Yeah. In other words, not just changing the diet, but change the microbiome per se and see if it affects your eyes. And we're just beginning that work now. Wow, that, that's no, that's really interesting. It's definitely on the uh, the, the cutting edge. Um, now, any uh, you know, we, we have some callers who who ask, uh, um, is AMD hereditary? And sort of wondering, you know, the influence of of genetics versus the the um, uh, the lifestyle uh, issues that you that that you mentioned. I mean, is there is one more uh, of a indicator or a factor than the other in terms of genetic hereditary versus versus diet? Well, there have been a variety of genetic alterations that are associated with increased risk for AMD. So there's no doubt that there's a genetic component of the disease. But does that genetic component have to drive the fact whether you'll get the disease or not 
And the answer is it seems to be affected by environmental influences as well. So whether or not you have the genes that may make you more susceptible to AMD, to the extent to which you can protect yourself by consuming a healthier diet, and I would say starting earlier early in life. So in other words, if pe- depending on how old people are, they might be talking to themselves or their children or their children's children in terms of developing healthier eating, eating lifestyles. I think one can begin to enjoy that protection very early on. And as I mentioned to you before, it's associated with protection against cardiovascular disease or heart disease and diabetes. So why not do it? Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, here at Bright Focus, um, we hear from a lot of people who are of the age where they have children and grandchildren and, uh, you know, really want to pass on um, healthy lifestyle and best best practices. So I think these are... your suggestions today seem like they would work well for for people of all ages. Um, so, Dr. Taylor, um, you, you've you've mentioned a few times different different nutrition studies. Like how how does someone uh, become in, uh, uh, how does a, a person become involved uh, in in a nutrition study? Is that something they can sign up for in some fashion, or how do, how does that work? Well, it's a very good question. Um, We've usually worked from cohorts that have been previously organized. In other words, there's a large cohort of nurses going cross-country. There's 150,000 or so nurses for whom there is an enormous body of data collected. And if somebody, say, was a nurse and wanted to volunteer for that study or the next phase of it, that would be the right thing to do. Or there are studies going on, for instance, in communities like Beaver Dam in Wisconsin or various cohorts that are being organized, um, and people could inquire, say, through their, I would say, usually their academic ophthalmology departments, because it's through academic ophthalmology departments that studies are are often organized. And I I would suggest that they speak to their ophthalmologist and ask if their ophthalmologist knows any studies uh, that are recruiting subjects and join through their ophthalmologist. Specifically, I think... The most important is an academically based ophthalmologist. Yeah, yeah. So, what would a you know, um, if I were in a, a a nutritional study, what what are some of the things that I would um, do or or be asked about to to help advance the field of research? Well, several things. One is people might ask you to fill out a health questionnaire to tell them what is your health like and ask you to give them permission to contact your doctor to validate some of the information that you put down or to get more details. They might, for an ophthalmology study, which we've done here, and I've directed those myself, ask people to come in for an ophthalmological exam and sit in the chair and let the ophthalmologist give you a full eye exam that might involve just looking at your retina, or asking you to do a dilated exam where they put in some drops in your eye and wait for your eye to open up, your iris to open up a little bit so they can look more clearly at the back of your eye and maybe your lens as well, or even ask questions about your glaucoma, pressure in the eye. So that exam could take maybe a couple of hours. Um, And I I think that... um, you know, volunteer. Those are the, the probably the major hurdles. Maybe sometimes they'll take a, a blood sample, so mm-hmm. as to corroborate what you have in your blood with what you may have mentioned. Say, if you gave a, a dietary history questionnaire to fill out a dietary history questionnaire, that kind of information is enormously useful for ophthalmologists as we try to do these kind of. Sure. 
But we need yes. large numbers of people. We need very large numbers of people to do these studies, so it's crucial that people do participate. And maybe the earlier in life, the better to get started, so you have a track record of for yeah. disease and when disease develops. Because remember, what we want to do is delay the onset of disease. Yeah. Now, now um, in these situations, uh, is science, uh, are studies sometimes slowed down by a lack of participation, or is it is it is it hard to get folks to to uh, to, to join studies like this, or? Well, the studies are costly. You know, the hardest thing is to get the money to do the studies, and then recruiting cohorts is extremely difficult. Uh, I think that most academic institutions try to focus on a specific cohort and keep studying them because they can't recruit more and more cohorts. But it's certainly crucial that we have people from every walk of life, be it rich, poor, different um, socio, uh, different. Um, backgrounds, you know, cultural backgrounds to, to participate because we, we really need to have information that's applicable to both black, white, yellow, red, sure. you know, people from all different backgrounds because we don't know the effect of yeah. that genetics on the risk for disease in many cases. So it's crucial yeah. that we have, like, the nutritional correlation of different culture as well. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Sorry. Just uh, maybe just – maybe Two quick more questions, then uh, then we'll wrap up for today. Uh, we have a Mary from Illinois uh, has a question about probiotics, and I think that's something you hear a lot about probiotics. You hear of people taking them, but uh, I'm not quite sure everybody knows what they are, what they do, and is there any impact for for vision health um, on with probiotics? Well, our data would suggest that the so the probiotics first of all affect your gut microbiota, right? They're a way to alter the population of the bacteria in your gut. And to the extent to which that's really a long-lasting effect, and I'm not sure it's a long-lasting effect if your diet is highly variable, but that may, in fact, influence both either positively or negatively the extent to which you get eye disease. Um, But those are the kind of experiments we're trying to really do in a very rigorous way in our lab now specific with mice where we can actually sterilize them, start with no microbiota, put in different kinds of microbiota, and ask if those different microbiota really affect the risk for disease. At the moment, there really is not good information about that for humans. It's very limited. Um, Actually, uh, just one other quick question from a... uh, uh, a listener, then we'll, we'll, we'll conclude. Um, uh, Olga from Texas um, is uh, wondering, like, are whole grains, um, like a type, of, a type of whole grain bread versus a, a strict wheat bread, are those similar in terms of a prudent diet, or is there a difference? Is like one better than the other? Yes, that's exactly the conclusion of one of our studies, is that people who use whole grain bread rather than typical white bread, for instance, um, do enjoy a lower glycemic index diet, assuming they're eating the same amount of bread. So it's not like one consume a tremendous amount and the other a little. Say, assuming you're consuming consuming, um, the same amount of bread, those who who consume the whole grain bread will have a lower glycemia diet than those who consume the white bread, and their, so their glycemic index or the burden of sugar in their body will be lower, and they will be protected against those diseases that are associated 
where higher risk is associated with higher glycemia diets, like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and macular degeneration. Yeah, well, that's great. So, Dr. Tower, just to, to conclude, you know, you uh, really appreciate your insights on, on the impact of diet and AMD. I'm just wondering, you know, from your perspective as a researcher, uh, do you have some faith or optimism about the future of, of, uh, of vision science, or how do you, how would you assess, uh, uh, you know, your, the, the future in terms of the research that you and your colleagues are doing and how that will affect uh, uh, AMD and, and related diseases? I think because of the research that's been done over, say, the last 50 years, um, and it's coming on faster and faster, we can all look forward to preserved vision. And it's really just due to that kind of research, whether it's research to enhance surgical techniques or to how to modify the biochemistry within the eye, or even as simple things as nutrition, which can have the most profound effects in terms of delaying disease. I, I think we can look forward to age, what I call optimal aging, and that is basically to live longer, healthier, or to live healthier longer, and yeah. enjoy the elder years without so many debilities, as our parents have have had. No, it's a it's a great point. I really appreciate uh, you're helping the Bright Focus audience today understand. Uh, the, the impact of, of lifestyle on, on healthy aging and some, some great advice that, that um, people can share with, with, their, with their children and grandchildren. So uh, I just want to thank you. Thank you very much for that. And, and uh, again, um, thank you, uh, Dr. Taylor, and thank you to our audience for, for your time today. I think this has been, been very helpful. Uh, again, Dr. Taylor, I just want to thank you and really appreciate all that you're, all that you're doing. And thank you very much for the crucial support that you've given us, and thank the patients and the people out there for their curiosity. It's wonderful to have people engaged. Yeah, well, great. It's a, it's a pleasure uh, being a partner with you. So uh, thank you very much, and this concludes today's Bright Focus chat. Thank you. Bye. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.